Good morning, church. Uh, I'm going to ask you to pray for your pastor this morning right from the beginning because my math skills are a little off. We are completing our, our study of the 12 apostles this morning, and if you've been counting, this is sermon number 15. So 12 apostles, 15 sermons. Don't know how that math works, but here we are, right? That's almost as bad as the joke we had before church service, right, Richard? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we are finishing up this morning with our study of the 12 apostles. Again, 12 common, ordinary men that uh, spent two-plus years with Jesus under his tutelage and his leadership and his transformation in their lives, changing 11 of the 12 to become ministers of the gospel, extraordinary men that turned the world upside down with the message of Christ as he entrusted them with that message. And the hope is that uh, as we've studied these men and we've looked at their, their rough points, their their uh, um, attitudes of some of them, whether they were loud and boisterous or they were quiet in the background, that how God transformed each of their lives and changed them, that we too can have hope that God can take our lives with those rough spots or those weaknesses or those strengths and transform us as we are willing to follow him when he beckons us and, and be changed like those 12 apostles were, or 11 of them. This morning, we come to the last apostle uh, who is legendary. Everybody knows who we're talking about without me saying a word, right? Judas Iscariot. Not the other Judas, as we looked at last week, but Judas Iscariot. And this man has been infamous through history since the time of Christ, but as we all know, not in a what? Good way, right? He changed things, but not for the positive. And there, you know, many people come and look and they're like, why was he amongst the 12? And we'll get into that. But we do have a lot to learn from Judas this morning, even though he uh, was not transformed by Christ because he would not allow Jesus to change him like the other 12. So if you want to read Luke 6, 12 to 16, it's the calling of the apostles. I won't make you read it this morning. We've only read it 14 times already. You should have it memorized by now, right? So we will just go on, but uh, we pick up with Judas Iscariot, the 12th apostle that Jesus did call and choose from among all the disciples. And remember from last week with the other Judas, that Judas was a common name at the time. And if you remember, it means Jehovah leads or praise. So it's a good, good name. And it was a good name at that time. And there were a lot of Judases. Um, but because of what this one man did, in one single decision, the name of Judas has been disgraced ever since then, right? I mean, we asked last week, how many of you have friends and family named Judas? Not too many, do you? So I did a little looking, and in 2023, this year, just in case you're wondering, on the list of top baby boy names, Judas is 890. Then I went on the Pampers Diapers website, who also publishes a list of 1,100 baby boy names that are the most popular. So I guess if you're at one, it's really popular, but if you get to 1,100, it's not so good, right? I they go that far, I don't know. But the name Judas was not even amongst the list. Wow. So practical application number one is we uh, look at this man Judas and we learn from him because God obviously placed him in the Bible. 
He called, Jesus called him as an apostle. He had him with him for two plus years like the other apostles. And there is message, there is wisdom for us to glean because for some reason, God kept Judas in the Bible, right? He didn't cover up the bad stuff, which means even with the bad stuff, there's stuff we can learn, right? And apply to our lives. So we'll take number one, that the decisions that we make are sometimes not isolated, right? Some people have said with sin, it's like, well, nobody will know or it won't hurt anybody. And, you know, it's just be a little secret sin. Well, Judas made one decision out of his two plus years with Christ. And it changed things forevermore. Even 2,000 years today, we just look at the name Judas and we think of what kind of names? Traitor, betrayer, loser, right? We don't purposely sit there and I, I don't remember Christy coming up to, with any of our three boys saying, you know what, I really like the name Judas. Let's name our kids Judas. I mean, what would that be like at school? I mean, it'd be horrible, wouldn't it? One man, one act, one lasting impact. So the application is our actions, our decisions, especially as a Christian, have an impact, don't they? That's why we need to consider what we're doing because sin is never solitary. When we make those decisions against Christ, who knows? Perhaps they could have an impact on one person or many people just like Judas had. Now, personally, when I think about Judas, I'm a little bewildered because this man spent two plus, almost three years in close proximity with who? Jesus and the other 11 apostles, right? I mean, he saw miracles. He saw the blind healed. He saw lepers cleansed. He saw the dead become alive. He heard probably the greatest sermons of all time. Every pastor since then has been trying to catch up to Jesus' sermons, you know. He heard these fantastic sermons. He spent close quality time as the apostles are sitting around with Jesus, conversing and discussing as Jesus is speaking to them. He witnessed amazing acts of grace and forgiveness. He was in the inner circle with Christ. He was face to face with Jesus on a daily basis. And yet, when Jesus took his ministry in a different direction in Jerusalem than the direction Judas wanted it to go, he betrayed him. He sold him out. He backstabbed him. All because this person, Jesus, who he'd been following and listening to for these last two plus years, made a statement about where his ministry was going, and it wasn't so much political. It was spiritual. And that one decision, because of Judas's pride and where he wanted things to go, caused him to betray Christ. Now, that sounds pretty tragic, doesn't it? And as we think about that, we're like, wow, what could cause a person to get to that point? Well, let me bring it down to earth. Have you ever been upset or displeased or angry or frustrated with someone because their decisions didn't go the way you thought they should go? We do it all the time, don't we? We have that little Judas aspect that if you don't act or do the things I want you to do, well, you better be ready because my wrath is coming, right? 
I'm going to pull the rug right out from under your feet because you don't do things my way. Well, that's the issue, and it's pretty convicting, isn't it? When we do the same thing that Judas does. I mean, what I want us to see in this is how easy it is to make that decision like Judas. Because if someone doesn't do things the way we want them to, and we don't have the attitude of Christ, we can instantly come against them, can't we? It's so easy. And here's the point. Sin is easy, isn't it? Staying faithful is the harder challenge. So we see immediately three things that we can learn from Judas before we even dive into him. Number one, that seeing miracles or people rise from the dead doesn't save anybody, does it? I mean, Judas saw all this, and it never impacted him unto salvation. Number two, if a person's heart is bent on self, you know, they've got their three favorite buddies, remember them? Me, myself, and I? If their heart is bent on self, they can be in the very presence of God himself and miss him. Judas was there for two plus years. The very presence of God, fully man, God, fully God, right there with him, and Judas missed it. And third, for those who are in Jesus Christ with salvation, attitude and mindset checks are a must, aren't they? We read in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 to 6, these words where Paul confronts us as believers. And he says, test who? Not other people, not your neighbors, not your pastor. Test who? Test yourselves to see if you are of the faith. Examine yourselves. Notice he repeats it again for emphasis. Test yourselves, examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Before we even dive into Judas, with his attitude of being with Christ, all he saw and he did, we can glean those three things. And if you leave here today and only remember those three things, well, it's been a worthwhile Sunday. Because it challenges us to realize that miracles don't change people. If we are bent on self, we can be in the very presence of Jesus and miss him. As Christians, we need to personally self-check our own attitudes against the full word of God to make sure that we are of the faith. I mean, we all talk about in sermons about how we like to hear those words. We, we come to Christ, we want to hear what words? Well done. How scary it would be to hear those words out of the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats and says, Who are you? I never knew you. That's why we must test ourselves. Now, we can all think of bad people in the world. I want you to think of a couple of them. Please don't put my name in there right now. But you can think of bad people. We can easily come up with them. I mean, Adolf Hitler tops the list. Joseph Stalin, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Nero, Genghis Khan. Recently, I put these two people on the list. Chad and Lori Daybell for what they did to her children. I mean, we can all think of evil, evil people. But the reality is Judas tops the list for all history because he literally betrayed the Son of God. And he did it cheaply, cheaply. Not inexpensively, but he did it cheaply. He betrayed Jesus for how much money? 30 shekels of silver. You know what that was according to Exodus 21, 32? 
that was the value of the cost of a slave, of a person who was considered not a person, but a possession, to be bought and sold, to be used until they're no good anymore. So Exodus 21:32 gives us the value of a slave at 30 shekels. And depending on where you look, there's various amounts on how much that is. But uh, I looked at some as low as 90. I looked at some as high as a, a couple thousand. But the best summation that I came up with that was most average was Judas sold Jesus out for around 340 bucks. That's it. You can spend that much in a grocery store if you fill your cart up, right? $340, and especially as Americans, that is not a lot of money. And that's all it took, $340 to sell out the Son of God. Pretty tragic, isn't it? Matthew, in his gospel, further warns us about testing ourselves in this issue that Jesus struggled with, that it is better to lose an appendage, an arm, a leg, an eye, or whatever, than to allow that thing, that pride, whatever it is that we hold on to a self and not be able to get into heaven. It's a challenging confrontation that Jesus gives us with Judas, especially as Christians, to say, hey, not only do you need to be awake and alert, you need to be testing yourself to make sure that you are of the word of God. You are in the faith. You are living the gospel. Your attitude and your mindset is right in line with Jesus. You're on that narrow path, not looking to the right or to the left, but staying on the narrow path and persevering to the very end. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 goes on and drives this attitude deep into our hearts. As we read in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the miracles of the coming age, and then have committed apostasy. To renew them again to repentance, since they are again crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over again, and holding him up to contempt. That's a stark warning. And I know because of the years that we have been together, even as a church, we have seen people come and go. We have been seen people come in and say, I'm on fire for God. And then over time, they just fade into the woodworks. Christy and I had a chat with someone uh, the other day that used to come to Wasatch on a regular basis, and then they went to another church. And as Christy was talking to this individual the other day, she asked them if they were still going to the church. Like, oh, no, I haven't been to church since COVID. And Christy's like, what do you mean? Oh, I just watch it on Sundays on TV. And Christy's like, what about what the Bible says about do not forsake the gathering together, the fellowshipping? You need to have that interaction. You need to have that commitment to a church to be involved, to be active. And she's like, oh, no, no, that's just I just watch it on Sundays. I mean, it's easy to do that, right? But we said earlier, there's something also very easy to do. And what is that? To sin. It's easy. It's convenient. It's comfortable. That's why the Bible uses the imagery of heaven being a narrow path and the road to hell that leads to destruction, a wide path. Because I just get this picture in my head. You know, you're just in this big crowd, like a big parade, and you really don't have to do anything or ask directions. You just what? You just kind of walk along with the crowd. It's easy. But that is not what God calls us to do in this testing, our examining of ourselves, to making sure we are of the faith. 
to hear the warnings of the gospel, to see the warnings of the man of Judas and what happened to his life, that we would not make the same mistakes. I mean, we gotta realize Jesus keeps Judas in the New Testament for strong, strong reasons as warnings to our lives of what not to do. And again, I'm speaking to the church here specifically because Judas was with the other 11 with Jesus on a daily basis. And yet his, far, his heart was as far away from God as you can get. And that should be a warning for us as we gather and come to church to make sure that we are faithful and committed to Christ and not taking the easy way out because it's convenient. What makes Judas such a solitary figure among the 12 apostles is that for those two plus, almost three years, he was with Christ, but he was never of Christ. Did you catch that? Big difference. With Christ, in the same room with him, but not ever of Christ. And the Bible tells us that there in the Last Supper, because of his thought process, that Satan finally entered into Judas and he did what he did. We've seen the calling in Luke of the 12 apostles from amongst all the disciples that were following John the Baptist and hearing the messages of Jesus. And it's interesting because Jesus makes it clear that he knew Judas would do what to him? Betray him. He knew it from the very beginning from his calling that Judas would betray him. And Judas is a bad example in a group kind of like the wolf in the sheep's clothing that is amongst the church. And we need to take heed that we don't make that same mistake. The one distinguishing thing about Judas from amongst the other 11 is this. The entire time that Judas was with Jesus and saw these miraculous things, heard these great sermons, spent quality one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus and just talking was that Judas would never allow Jesus to transform his life. All other 11 apostles were transformed from who they were when Jesus called them to extraordinary preachers and evangelists, men whose hearts were 100% sold out for Jesus Christ, even to the point of death if necessary, going to the ends of the world at the time to preach the gospel, to proclaim the name of Christ, to proclaim that Jesus was fully God and fully man, and yet Judas was there with all of them watching these transformations in their lives, having discussions amongst them, being with them, but never of them, and never allowing Jesus to transform his life. I mean, I think about that. I'm like, how can that happen? How can you be there for two plus almost three years, right there in the middle of it, and never be changed? It's a heartbreaking story, isn't it? But it's also a very real story because it's a story of pride that is rampant that we struggle with too. Judas's pride to have things his way is what cost him to betray Jesus. Because Jesus would not do things the way Judas wanted them. You see, his pride, his opinion, his way of being right would eventually cost him his life. Now, we've been taught to have pride in our country, right? Pride in our culture, even pride in ourselves. And that's where the Bible clashes with our material world. Pride, although it appears good on the outside, is evil on the inside. 
And as a Christian, pride is a disease worse than cancer. Proverbs 16, 18 states, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit, a prideful spirit, before a fall. Pride causes us not to put God first in our lives, not to obey God's commands, to make excuses or have other reasons, and for the Christian, pride needs to leave and exit our lives as fast as possible because pride breeds selfishness, it breeds prejudice, and it breeds condemnation. We've seen the world's version of pride where they're going pride in their choices, and when they come up and they up against anyone that is a, of a different opinion than their choices, there's a clash, isn't there? There's a conflict of interest, and it's ugly. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say that pride is evil, because there's nothing wrong with loving the country that you live in, your culture, your background, or having a positive self-esteem, or I would say for us, a positive God-esteem in ourselves. All these are great, and we should rejoice in them because we have been so blessed. But the pride we're talking about is the biblical definition of pride, not the world's definition of pride. So when I tell my children that I'm proud of them, I'm not casting a curse on them because I'm casting an evil pride upon them. What I'm saying is, I praise God for the good choices they are making in life and how well they are doing and being mature and adults. The biblical definition of pride has to do with an overinflated view of self, our abilities, and our own righteousness our ability to almost attain our own righteousness. And what that biblical definition of pride does is it makes us better and bigger and smarter than God to the point that we don't need God and we definitely don't need to listen to God because we've got it all figured out. I am a self-made man, you know? As, as the old Rat Pack singer saying, I did it whose way? My way. It's an in-your-face mentality of it's my way or the highway. I don't need you or anybody else telling me how to live, how to transform my life, what I need to change. I have it figured out and I know where I'm going. Pride is pretty blunt from a biblical point of view. Proverbs 11.2 says this, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.5 tells us, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Psalms 10.4 says this, In his pride the wicked does not seek God. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. And 1 John 2.16 in the New Testament tells us this, For all that is in the world, catch that, all that is where? in the world, worldly thinking, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful, what, pride of life. These are not from the Father, but from the world. So again, when we say we're proud of our children or we have pride in our country, I'm not saying that that's wrong. Maybe we just should, should use a different word, right? Because as Christians, this issue of pride, as the Bible talks about pride of overinflating our ego and our self and our, our ability and our wisdom, our way of being right all the time, comes against God. Because as the Word of God says, it doesn't even allow room for a thought of God to come in because we are so right. Nobody will tell me 
what to do. When pride is spoken of in the Bible, it's never spoken of in a positive way. It is always evil, destructive, and an extremely selfish, self-centered, self-focused, entitled thing. Now here's the crazy thing. All 12 of the disciples, and we have looked at them, have had a pride issue when they first met Jesus, right? Maybe you and I had a pride issue when we first met Jesus, right? But the other 11 humbled themselves before God and allowed God to conform them and transform them into the individuals, the men that God wanted them to be. That means in their pride, they had to let those attitudes go and replace them with humility of God's attitudes. To let their determination of the future go and how people should act and what they should do and accept the way that Christ thought it should go and how they should act and what they should do. Practical application for our lives. Anybody in here struggle with pride? Sometimes, a lot of times, daily, right? As soon as we wake up and get out of bed, it's like first thing we think of is not God, but what we're having for breakfast, right? It's about feeding me first and then we'll come to God. We all struggle with pride. It's a temptation of the world that we live in and although we are in the world, we are not of the world. And we constantly daily have to fight the spiritual battle of pride because it's put in our face so often of not getting things my way, but choosing that God's way, a different way, is so much better. And allowing God to transform us and conform us to his way because we have humbled ourselves before him. Remember what we read in Proverbs 11:2? It says, with humility comes wisdom. And here's the crazy thing about wisdom. The fear of God is what? The beginning of wisdom. To understand that God is so much greater. And his way trumps my way all the time. Now, Judas Iscariot. Remember, Judas was a good name. means Jehovah saves or Jehovah leads or prays. And his parents, like the other Judas we looked at last week, probably named him Judas with the great ambition of, this is going to be a man that grows up and follows God. Well, in a way he did, but he missed it completely, didn't he? He missed it completely. Iscariot. Typically in the Bible, we have like James the son of John or something like that, right? Iscariot is not the name of his father because typically that name would be the name of their father. In John 16, is 671, we hear his father's name is Simon. So what does Iscariot mean as God places um, meaning in names? Well, Judas means Jehovah leads or praise. Iscariot actually means the man from Kerioth, which there were two Kerioths mentioned in the New Testament. This one, specifically where Judas is from, is about 23 miles south of Jerusalem is the royal farm area. And so Iscariot is used to specify Judas as being different than the other 11. Different than the other 11. This is Judas from Kerioth. It's that guy. Not Judas the son of this person or something else. It's Judas Iscariot, which is Judas from Kerioth. Now, Judas had to be amongst the hundreds or thousands of disciples, but he was there probably following perhaps John the Baptist, hearing Jesus' messages, hearing him speak, seeing him gain and gain in popularity. And Judas would follow Jesus, but not for the same reason as the other 11. 
Judas would not follow Jesus for spiritual reasons. In fact, you never read in the New Testament where Judas is the one amongst the group asking spiritual questions. We hear the others asking about it, right, or arguing who's going to be first in the kingdom and Jesus has to correct them. We never read of Judas asking spiritual questions about the kingdom of heaven, about the way of God. The only times we hear about Judas is when he's a little ticked off because he thought money was wasted somehow, right? His bent was political, personal, or financial. It was never spiritual. Remember, we've talked about the fact that at this time there were a lot of so-called messiahs, especially during the Passover. They would come into Jerusalem and proclaim they were the messiah that God foretold, but they were there for a political change against the Romans. That's kind of where Judas's mindset was. It was not spiritual. We know that Judas was also in the very presence of God himself for almost three years, but he was as far away from God as you can get. In the presence of but never really with. We also know that Judas sells Jesus out because Jesus' decision to make have things go a different way than Judas was enough for him to sell him out for 340 bucks. We know that Judas felt sorrow and guilt, and here's a big application for us, folks. This one is not just a little nugget of wisdom. This is a mammoth boulder of God's wisdom. Judas did, after he sold Jesus out, he did feel guilt. He did feel sorrow. You ever feel guilty and sorrow? But it never led him to what? Repentance. We never read where Judas repented. Now, he threw the money back. He's like, well, this is blood money. I'm throwing it back. And then the, the, the Pharisees were like, oh, we can't touch that. It is blood money. You killed a man for this. You betrayed him. We can't touch it. Judas felt sorrow and guilt. But there is a massive difference between feeling sorry and guilty versus repenting. Repentance is taking complete ownership for the decision that was made and rectifying it as much as possible by doing everything you can to change it, to pay it back, to do whatever. Many people struggle with the issue of feeling, feeling sorrow or guilty for this thing called getting caught. You ever see someone, they do something bad and they get caught and they feel bad, they feel sorryful, but they never repent? They're embarrassed because they got caught, so they feel bad, but that's as far as it goes. Judas gives us this tremendous example that we can have human emotions of sorrow and guilt, and we can feel bad about something, whether it's something we actually did or getting caught. We can take a little action, but if we don't allow that to lead us to repentance, we have failed the test. Repentance is what Jesus calls for, isn't it? Repentance, repentance, repentance. Because what repentance does, it brings us back to our knees before the throne of God on humility. It places God back above our throne of grace in our lives where we take ourselves off the throne, we lower ourselves down, we put Jesus up, and when we say amen, we say, I agree with you, Jesus, your way is better. I have sinned and sinned against you alone, as David proclaimed. The sin is always really against God. And that's why repentance is necessary for salvation. You ever notice reading through the New Testament that you can't get salvation just because you feel bad or you feel guilty? People going to hell all the time feel, feel bad, feel sorrow, and feel guilty, but they never repent. Practical application for us. 
we need to test ourselves to make sure we have repentant hearts, don't we? Because repentance is so much different than just feeling sorry or guilty over something. It's literally life-changing, eternal life-changing for us. Now, Judas, by his lifestyle, was driven by material things. The money, the whole bit. You ever ask a question when you read about Judas about why would Jesus pick Judas to be an apostle? I mean, doesn't that make obvious sense? Isn't that the obvious question? You got 11 guys that were transformed, radically transformed and changed the world. And then you got Judas. Jesus knew he was going to betray him. Why would he pick this man to be with him for two plus years, to be in the inner group? Why would Jesus do that? Well, Ken, give us the answer. Yeah. Here's why. It has to do with God's, God's omnipotence, his all power. God can use ungodly people to bring forth his will. And God does. We saw it in the Old Testament. There's a famous guy in the Old Testament that exemplifies this also. Remember this guy called Pharaoh in Egypt? God even brought in 10 plagues. I mean, wouldn't you think you'd pay attention after 10 plagues? And yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he turned against God, but God used Pharaoh in his ultimate will to make things happen. God uses Judas in his ultimate will to bring forth salvation for us. Because there was this thing called sin since Adam and Eve that infiltrated the world that had to be paid for by a life because the penalty for sin is death. The price had to be paid. Jesus knew he had to pay the price. He was the final sacrificial lamb of God, the ultimate offering to cover those sins, to take all of our sins upon himself. But if he never died and was crucified and buried, he would never rise again from the grave three days later and be able to bring us salvation. So one of the big reasons Judas is in here is because God uses Judas, just like he did Pharaoh, to bring forth his will. Now it's an ugly thing. It's a horrible thing. But we all know as Christians it had to be done. Because if Jesus had never gone to the cross, if there was never any rising from the grave, as the Apostle Paul said, if Jesus never rose from the grave, then our faith is useless. Why would we even meet on a Sunday for church and gather together except for hot dogs? I mean, why can't we can go to the ballpark and do that? We can stay at home and do that. If Christ never rose from the grave and ascended back into heaven as the, the Son of God in all his glory, our salvation, our faith is useless. And so God in his divine self uses Judas to bring forth that destruction of Christ the betrayal, the selling out, so that Christ would be in, in a position to be brought before Herod and be crucified under judgment to die once for all, for all of our sins, and then three days later to rise from that grave and ascend to heaven and to bring us salvation. Does that make sense? It's not hard to see why Judas is there. It's just like the story of Pharaoh in Egypt. God brought his people out of 400 years of slavery and 
brought them through the sea and then closed the waters behind them of their past with the Egyptians. But God used the hardened heart of Pharaoh to bring that about. Because I think in my mind, knowing what we know about uh, the, the Israelites out of the Exodus out of Egypt, I mean, God finally had to make them wander in the desert for 40 years because they never got it. They were always grumbling and complaining and seeking their own stuff and crying out, God, why don't you provide for us more than manna? Why don't you do this for us? They never fully got it. But God did bring them out in salvation freedom from slavery which is what we have with the issue of sin we are a slave to sin or we are a slave to god right you're still a slave either way but to have spiritual salvation we are freed from the bonds of sin right we are no longer in control like a puppet under satan that's where judas comes in he is the new testament pharaoh of the old testament to bring forth salvation for God's people. It had to be done. There was no other way to do that because if it didn't happen, our salvation is not real and our faith is a waste of time. And praise God it did happen and we know different and the evidence is there and we know our eternity is set. So Judas was in his lifestyle was driven by greed self-gain, self-interest, having things his way. He loved his money and he loved other people's money. You know that? He liked money a lot. He liked things. It's interesting that Jesus puts Judas in charge of the money box of the apostles. You know, that little, that little cash cow that they carried around to pay for all the stuff that they did and their travels and what they needed? Who should have been in charge of the money box? Wasn't there like an accountant amongst the group? Ever think of that? Matthew? Why didn't why not have Matthew be in charge? I mean, the guy was good at, at taking care of money. No, Jesus puts Judas in charge of the money box, which is quite an irony. And Jesus knew what Judas did with that money box. And his attitude towards that money box and the money that was in there, just like Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, it was all part of the same plan. That Jesus is telling us that a man's heart through and through and through and through is what it is doesn't change on condition or change it's either for God or it's against God the entire time we read in John 12 verses 4 to 6 that interesting reality of Jesus when the woman comes in with the expensive vial of perfume a, a year's worth of wages for this perfume and she anoints Jesus's feet and wipes his feet with her hair dumps the entire bottle a year's wages of perfume upon the feet of Jesus. And spiritually, it's an anointing for him for what is yet to come. But to one man in the group, it's an apostasy. John, 4, John 12, starting verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, oh, it's already there, isn't it? said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to feed the poor people? Well, it sounds like a very good attitude, right? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor. You know, put a nice little excuse out there. He had ulterior motives. But because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Judas didn't want the perfume to be sold to feed the poor. He wanted the perfume to be sold for the money to go in the box so he could what? 
just fill his own pockets a little bit. You know, maybe he needs something and look, God has provided. He's just put it there in a money box and I'm in charge of the money box. Well, you know, man gets rewarded for his work, doesn't he? Well, that must be mine. Judas's view of messiahship was not theological based on the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament as all good Jews would know what those were. That was their Bible at the time. His view of the messiahship was earthly, political, military, and economical. His mindset was worldly as far as the messiah. And all of this he knew would somehow benefit him just like he wanted the money in the money box so it would what? Benefit who? Him. Not the poor, that's just a facade put out there. He had no surrender to Jesus. He probably initially followed Jesus because he saw this, this man giving these messages and people began to follow. And Jesus had good things to say. And what Judas probably saw was this political, this was like a political campaign for Judas. You know, when you or I support a, 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 a political figure that's running for office, it was like, if this guy gets in office, if he's the one elected, and I'm amongst his inner group, where's this lead? Well, who's he gonna to pick to be on his cabinet to make decisions? Maybe I'll be in charge of the money then too, and if I am, well, a man's worthy of his wages, right? So I can just take some of that and skim a little to myself. Judas saw this whole political campaign with Jesus as when Jesus was in this position, Judas would be with it because he'd been with the 12 the whole time and he would have political coup and political power and he would already have an in into office for who? For him. That's where Judas's, Judas missed Jesus because he never surrendered to him and when Jesus broke his heart and said, hey, Dude, I know you're putting up this political campaign. You're getting buttons for me. You're doing banners. You know, we're kind of coming around the country doing this thing. It's like, I'm not running for office. I'm doing my father's will and I'm going to go die. And Judas is like, what? You mean I've spent two some years with you going through this stuff and now you're telling me I'm getting nothing out of it? No personal gain, no place in your cabinet, your office. I'm getting nothing out of this. You see where Judas switches? Because his heart was bent on self and personal gain and that pride of he knew how he was going to establish his future and make it happen and come out looking and smelling like roses and be financially gained. Well. We never read about that in politics anymore when someone gets in the office and suddenly a couple years later they're extremely rich. Well, they had no personal gain in that, right? No public insight on stock trading or anything. Hmm. We see it all the time. Once again, we never read of Judas having spiritual interest, only material gain. We don't hear him asking and conversing with Jesus about spiritual things. It's just putting the questions out like, what the heck is going on? You wasted that perfume. We could have put money in the money box. Which again, benefited him because Judas was a thief. He never fooled Jesus either, you know, the whole time he's ministering. I've heard some people think, well, Jesus must not have really known if he had Judas with him the whole time. 
He had Judas with him the whole time. He picked him. He knew he would betray him. It was part of his father's will. Which there's another practical application here for us with this. Are there people in a church that aren't Christian that are here for personal gain? Absolutely. One of the churches that Christy and I served with in was a large church. And we actually met people there that when they would put out the church directory of everybody's phone number and everything, they would gladly grab that up because suddenly they knew there were 500 new potential clients for them. They had no interest in church. They were just there to put on a good show. Yeah, they did a couple of nice good things. They'd have coffee and a, and a donut and chat with everybody, but they wanted that directory because I got 500 new leads as clients now. They weren't there for Christ. They were in church for the benefit of themselves. We see it all the time, right? It happens. And again, this is where we come back to what we started at the beginning of where Paul says, test yourselves, examine yourselves, ask the question, why am I in church? Why am I reading the Word of God? Why am I there and what am I contributing and why? Because we need to make sure we are of the faith. Of the faith. Now Jesus says this of Judas in John 6:70. He says, Jesus answered him and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Matthew 26 when they're in the upper room, goes on to tell us this in verses 23 to 25. And Jesus answered, when they're asking about who is the one who would betray him, he says, Jesus answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And Judas, who was betraying Jesus, he was in the act of it, said, surely, Rabbi, it is not I. And Jesus says, you've said it yourself. Now, here's the crazy scene with this whole picture. There, there, Jesus and Judas are having this private conversation. The apostles have no clue. In fact, they have thought Judas has been part of them the whole two plus years. They've never questioned him. They're in the upper room going, Lord, is it me? Is it me? They're doing it because they don't want to betray Christ. Judas puts it out there and Jesus says, yeah, it's you. You said it yourself. Wouldn't that be a good point to repent? Say, Lord, if it's me, please forgive me. I'm sorry. Help me not to do this. All it does is encourage Judas to go and now do what? Betray Jesus. Jesus will go on to call Judas the son of perdition in his prayer to his father in John 17, 12. And that verse John 17, 12 has a direct correlation with 2 Thessalonians 2, in which there's another man called the son of perdition. Do you know who in 2 Thessalonians is called the son of perdition? The Antichrist. Because he's come to destroy all that God has made. Perdition, the son of perdition means one of two things. To be in ruin, biblically tied to spiritually dead, or to be the cause of great destruction. And isn't that what Satan's game, in, game, game is, is to destroy all that God has done? I mean, we see this in a church where people act like a Judas in church, where the pastor says something they don't like or don't agree with. Somebody does something in church they don't like or agree with. And so and they're like, I'm going to withhold my tithe. I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to do it until you do something different or apologize to me. Or they leave. We've even seen it in Wasatch in its early years where 
the pastor would not preach on things because it wasn't biblical that people were asking them to preach on. And so they had this big rally, came right up in the middle of a service and demanded that things change and scooted out. And you know what else they did? It was just like Lucifer when he fell, when he was cast out of heaven. What did Lucifer do when he was cast out of heaven? Took a third of the angels with them. You know what people do when they get bent on their own way and are acting like a Judas in church, but their heart is not on what God wants and being humble and saying, well, hey, maybe I could learn something here. Maybe it's not so much in my face. Maybe it's an issue I have to deal with. Instead, they storm out, they leave, and they do what? Y'all come with me because this place isn't a place of God. I'm going to take as many with me as I can. Isn't that like what Lucifer does or did? Well, if I don't get it my way, I'm going to take as many of this flock as I can. That's the son of perdition. When the Antichrist comes on, what is his goal? To take as many of these people to hell with him as he can. But here's what we've got to realize. Hell was never designed for us. Who was hell designed for? The devil and his angels. Their future is already established. But when the Antichrist comes on, he's going to take as much as he can. When Judas betrayed Jesus, he's like, if you're not doing it my way, I'm going to what? I'm going to take you and your whole crew down. We'll just finish this now, and then I can go on to my other political game. And finally, Judas will betray Jesus after the 30 pieces of silver in another way. This is the most heartbreaking. This goes beyond the 30 pieces of silver. He betrays Jesus with what? Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? With a kiss, a brotherly kiss, a term of endearment, a fellowship of closeness, of love. That's how he betrays Jesus. Silver was one thing, yeah. But now he sternly walks up to Jesus. He says, I'm going to give you this term of endearment. And he's told everyone behind him, the one who I kiss, not a sexual kiss, let's get that right. This was a brotherly kiss. The one who I kiss, that's the man. You take him. That's the part that I think is truly heartbreaking. Because he's coming before Jesus and the other apostles that think he's still part of the group. They don't know yet. And he gives this sign of, I'm with you. We're together. And that's the sign to betray him. Judas is given in the Bible for us as a warning. Again, as Paul said, to examine and test ourselves to make sure that we're of our faith and not acting like a Judas. Because as we've seen so far, it's easy to act like a Judas, isn't it? It's easy to pull the rug out from people if they don't do things our way. It's easy to betray them. It's easy to backstab them. It's easy to be angry at them. It's easy to sin. It's easy to take and never give. It's easy to be in church and never have salvation. All this is easy. And Judas is the poster child for that, giving us a stark warning. So here, we're going to take a little rabbit trail down a kind of a dark road. But here's where we test ourselves. Imagine with me <coughs> for a moment that you are in a country where Christianity is deemed illegal and you are Christian. Christianity is punished by imprisonment, torture, or perhaps even death. Imagine with me for a moment that you have been captured and taken away from your family and your friends and your own home, 
and you were placed in a six by six foot pit dug in the ground with metal bars placed over the top as your roof. Rain comes in, snow comes in, you sit there in a six by six dirt hole. No blankets, no music, no toilet, except for the one corner that you've chosen to be the toilet in yourself because you can't get out. Food is dropped in your hole with the laughter of the guards that they happen to just accidentally spill it upon you when they drop it down to you. Here's the test. What's your attitude? Would you still love Jesus? As much as you do now in that six by six foot hole, would you still stay faithful? Would your heart still be turned over to Jesus with humility, knowing that you'll probably never get out of there alive? Would you sing hymns and praise songs? Would you pray and praise God that even though you're in a pit, you still have another day to witness to those guards? Would you pray to Jesus and be like, Lord, is this, if this is the way I can glorify you, then let it be. I'm here for you, Lord. I am yours. If this is how I glorify you, if this is how you called me to witness for you, to suffer well, then God, do you be the glory. Or would you, like many people, be angry, self-pity, hateful, vile, casting out the vulgar insults to the guards as they cast them back to you? That's kind of the Judas test, isn't it? I mean, we don't want to go there because we're like, I want to praise God, but I don't want to suffer for God. But some people are called to do that. I mean, we think of people in our own time of like Corey Ten Boom forgiving the very guard that kept her tied up and pretty much killed her sister. And she forgave him face to face. Judas is the warning to test ourselves because we can be in church, we can have the hymnals across the whole bit, we can eat the hot dogs, but not have salvation. And that's why Judas is in the Bible. One, to do the will of God the Father, to make it happen so we could have salvation, to still be in God's will even though he's an unbeliever, and two, to remind us that we need to be in Christ we need to be humble and be willing to transform and change by Christ as he confronts our attitudes and his way as the Bible states it so eloquently does not go what our way that his thoughts are not our thoughts it's a question of do we bend the knee or do we fight back in hatred that's it let's pray father we thank you that you don't hide the ugly parts in your word from us, that you place them there for us to learn from, to, to test them against our lives, that we would know that we are in you. Lord, we pray once again this morning and we ask and beg your forgiveness upon us for our sinfulness, our, our pride, our prejudice, our, our selfishness, our times in life when we don't give ourselves 100% to you. Lord, we ask your forgiveness upon us and you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, with your grace, that your living water would overflow abundantly from us, that our hearts would live in humility and not pride, that our lives would be bent to do your will and not our own, that we would literally, as your word say, says, die to ourselves 
that we would live to you. Because how treacherous the day would be if we just lived this life to ourselves and lost it for all eternity. Lord, we give you the praise, the glory, the thanks. We thank you for your divine will. We thank you that our salvation is real, that our faith is assured and solid, and that one day we will be with you with no more tears, no more pain, and your will 100% done. To you be the glory and the praise. Lord, change our lives, transform us into your people. In Jesus' name.